Welcome, Legionaries, to episode 24, Hobby Roundtable 10. I am your host, Warwick, and joining me are my co-hosts, Manipal and Paul. Say hi, guys. Greetings, Longbeards. Good to be back. And just a question. Did you ever wonder why elves and goblins both have pointy ears? It bears thinking about. Food for thought, but the wrong lore podcast. And uh, Thanks for having me back on. Glad to have you guys. As we talked last episode, Brandon is still on vacation. That's okay. I promise not to do my Brandon impression this time. I got a little carried away. But we've got a pretty interesting episode planned. We're going to be talking about the Legion's Imperialis announcement that we're excited about. I'm going to mention, mention taking a Ferrix again for our buddy Lucas, who uh, couldn't join us for this episode, but maybe next time we'll see. We're going to talk for a Fulgrim's Quest, Painting Plasma in OSL, that's Object Source Lighting, if anybody's interested. And we've got a new segment called the Pyreside Chat, where we rework some of GW's rules in ways that maybe we think could be done a little better. Yeah, sounds good. And we do have, even though only three sections, plenty of material to cover here. So did you guys all see the list of new releases that uh, came out? I'm pretty excited about it. Epic is back, baby. I never played Epic, so I don't know. My hype is a little tempered in that regard, but it does look really cool. Part of me is really excited about it because I really like the models, but the other part of me is like, I don't have room for all this shit, and it's going to be another money sink. On top of that, like I've just spent a bunch of money on some new fishing and kayaking shit, so here we go again, I guess. Well, I'll probably definitely buy the box set because it does look interesting, and... There were not just the Legion's Imperialis announcement, but also the two new Serastus Knights will be in plastic. So you'll be able to field a Lancer, a Castigator, and an Acheron. And Paul, I think you had some notes on that. What do you think of those three units? Yeah, I mean, it's it's a cool model. You know, the Forge World one was a really good design, and it looks like they've transferred it over to plastic really well. The one issue that I've seen floating around is this idea that this isn't for heresy. They're showing it as heresy, but it's for 40K because 40K players are going to get way more utility out of this. Me as a Space Marine player for heresy, I the knight doesn't fit anywhere and it doesn't really serve a purpose for me. I think the other thing too that's really problematic with it is for anybody who does play the knight households, it's a cool get, but knights in particular, their rules have been struggling. That Lancer, for example, is four attacks, and it doesn't have brutal. So it's like, at most, you're doing like four damage. It'll open tanks like nothing else, but you know, against the type of armies that you're seeing on the table, it's not going to accomplish a whole lot. So if you were going up against like a large unit of Cataphracti with a... Primark, that thing is going to go down? Is that what you would foresee? Uh, I don't know if they'd be able... Well, depending on their loadout, they could probably take it down. The The big thing is the knights are really big and imposing, but they don't have a lot of damage output. My knight crusader that you can see in the back there, that entire weapon loadout is AP4. Space Marines take their armor saves against that. It's just weird. And so unless they're doing, you know, a rules rewrite with these new releases, I think it's not going to make much of a difference for a knight household player. And it's not going to make, you know, anyone playing a different faction look at them anymore. 
I think it's for 40K because the 40K profile, those look great. And those have a place in, you know, almost any Imperium army. Dreadnoughts too are going to have a heyday with these things because a lot of the Dreadnought loadout, like especially with the melee weapons, depending on what you take, either has Armor Bane or Brutal. So Knights are not going to have fun against that. And I, I know I talked about it a few episodes ago, the Melta Lands can, on a lucky roll like I had, can pop one of those Knights easy. So I was pretty shocked at the lack of durability on them. So in heresy standing, I think that they're they're going to struggle, as AP said. Well, and especially, too, with all the heavy hitters we've been coming out with armor, from, with all the tanks. And, I mean, we've talked about this before, all the tanks. And there's stuff on there with some really devastating long-range weaponry that I think these these guys are going to struggle against. Although not having fielded them on the on the board, I, I don't know. Maybe there's something I'm not seeing there. But, yeah, I think that would be a, a pretty dangerous battlefield to walk on. Definitely. The the models, however, do look amazing. Uh, the, the Knight Household players are definitely got a really fun model there to work with and build. So, I mean, good for them. But uh, for us Space Marine guys, uh, it's kind of a tough sell. Well, but if you want more Space Marine stuff, boy, we got it. With that Legion's Imperialis box set, I think you, it looks... Not knowing what the MSRP is, I'm guessing... It's what do you think? Are you guys thinking like the two seven two hundred, two fifty mark? I'm thinking between two hundred and two fifty. Uh, there's no terrain in it, so I'm probably going to go back towards that two hundred mark because it's just miniatures in a book. Uh, if it's more, if it's more than two fifty, that's going to be re- quite a stretch. Well, I was going to say it seems the trend is everything's getting a lot bigger because Age of Darkness is only models in a rule book and it's three hundred. Sure, these are smaller models, but GW doesn't classify the amount of plastic in the box towards the price. Wasn't the Leviathan box like more than two fifty? Yeah, it was like two eighty or something like that. Yeah. I know. I know. A while back, guys were talking about how the Games Workshop. I think Brandon was telling me about this a couple of years ago. Games Workshop's analytics came back, and they found out that their their sales margin tended to drop around the $200 range. So when these box box sets came out around $200, players were less likely to buy them, but it seems like that's just gone out the window in the past couple of years. And uh, I know the uh, Games Workshop servers for their website were just swamped when Leviathan pre-orders went up. I didn't pre-order it, but it was crazy at, at how much traffic they were getting. That really surprised me because uh, the, the amount of hatred that I saw online for people not being able to get it. And on the other side, so many people screaming, screaming that they couldn't get it. And then seeing all the scalpers on eBay with multiple copies, um, the demand for that was, was high. So just to clarify, I looked it up. Leviathan was 250, um, but it was sold out almost immediately upon pre-order. Same thing with Indominus. I remember yeah. trying to, cause I, I pre-ordered that. And I only got I, one box. I got it through my, I got it through my local Warhammer store for the, my my brick and mortar store. The store owner there was able to stand me a copy, so that was handy. Yeah, it seems like they know that the drop off is is a thing once you get past the two hundred mark, and so they create scarcity to sort of like push people into trying to buy it because they know it'll disappear. That's an interesting way of looking at it. They're they're engineering scarcity to push sales. That's crazy. Yeah. 
because it's, well, I'm looking at uh, Leviathan and I'm going 250. I can't really afford that. But I also know that in three months time, it's gone completely. So if I want it, I have to get it now. And so everyone rushes, they flood the pre-order, they go to every store and they pick up every box they can get. And all of a sudden GW makes their sales. Yeah, and I've been burned a few times in getting those box sets because they'll have, first of all, there'll be stuff in there that I'd, I don't need because I've already got something of that line. Secondly, a lot of the new box sets are more of a one, only you can only put it together one way or they're push fit models where you don't get any options. And they'll release something like, it'll be, a, particularly with some of those old, the the starter boxes for the factions, You'd get a, a pretty good deal if you looked at buying all the things separately. It was a good deal. But you'd get some character model in there that you didn't need two or three of. Because ideally, you'd want to be able to go into the store and buy a couple of those to really get your big starter army first. But it always ended up with a bunch of stuff I couldn't use. Like like I played Gene Stealer Cults. I ended up with three or four of those guys with the banner bearers. The, the banner bearer guy. didn't. I only needed one. I can't even think if I, if I really uh, fielded one ever. But hopefully those box sets of are this something you could really split with somebody or buy two of and get a good deal. That's the the thing with the current Space Marine line is that all these box sets are coming out with the lieutenant models, the Space Marine or the Primaris lieutenants. I have so many fucking lieutenants. I don't know what to do with them. I have uh, 14. I don't have that many. Holy shit. Well, I, I've got almost 10,000 points of Space Marines, but even then, 14 lieutenants is... Uh, I mean, I'm never going to have a list <laughs> where I can even use them all. Oh, well, that might be a subject, actually, for a Plundering the Vaults episode, because there in, in issue 300 of The White Dwarf, there was a list for um, real Space Marines. If they were as as bad as they are in the fiction, how would you field them? You'd only need five to make a couple thousand points, and you could field all your lieutenants in an army like that, which could be fun. Yeah, I mean, at that point, we're playing Inquisitor, basically. So let's look a little bit more at what's actually in that in that uh, box set. Um, you do get a nice book, and I'll talk about the book a little bit later. You get the standard white little white dice a bunch of punch-out tokens. You get a set of orange blast templates and the old classic red whippy sticks. Now, I was actually a little bit disappointed with those inclusions because when we got Adeptus Titanicus, one of the best things in there was the the dice. You, you got a really nice set of really chunky Adeptus Titanicus dice. And they were better than the ones that I think are usually sold through GW. But in this case, it looks like we're just getting the really basic set of add-ins. Would you guys give any opinion on that? Yeah, I mean, Titanicus is kind of the standout in terms of their release. I don't know who's working on their team, but those releases were really well done. The Grandmaster set, the starter box, the, the core rules box. Uh, you got a lot of really good bang for your buck with those. It didn't feel like you were getting cheap sort of stuff. I mean, the fact that you got hardcover rule books in the core rules thing was like crazy to me instead of like some paperback floppy thing. Yeah. And then they actually released that little mini starter set that just had the rule book, the dice and the templates in it. So if you had a buddy and you'd already bought that grandmaster set, you could just buy the rules and your templates and you're good to go. I, I can't remember the last time I say G, saw GW do anything like that. 
but that was a great release and I, I i bought an extra one just because of that and then if you look at the models in there correct me if i'm wrong but the space marines are painted up as death guard yeah is that, that is correct you get a bunch of the little space marines in mark six armor including a command section uh regular marines and assault marines cataphracty terminators there are two Sakaran tanks, three Predators, and I think there are four Contemptors. Yeah, interestingly, four Contemptors. Yeah, interestingly, a lot of those have weapon options, so you can put different loadouts on the, even those, those little models. Yeah, and just a special shout-out. The memes have been going pretty strong online for the fact that Epic's getting Assault Marines before the base Heresy game. I was going to say that. That's <laughs> awesome. But that... That Sakaran with the the plasma cannons looks so freaking cool. I can't believe how how awesome I think that is. That is a really neat model. Like that option alone is is really cool to me. Being able to handle these tiny loadouts is really cool. So in that, when you put together your and we covered this in the last was that the last hobby roundtable where we went through Epic, or was that two ago? I think that was a couple ago. I can't um, remember now. You assemble your army as a detachment, and so it looks like here you could probably put together. a one, two, possibly even three detachments out of that, depending on how many command squads you have. But you could do one detachment that was all your vehicles and one that was all your um, walkers or your, and your infantry altogether. Or you could make one big detachment. If you were to look at this in terms of a 30k army you were going to build, would this be a legitimate 30k army? I think this is a really solid set for a yeah, Space Marine Detachment. Yeah, I think this works. Yeah. It would be a kind of a wonky 30k army. Kind of missing heavy supports. No super heavies. It'd be The Dreadnoughts would be weird with four. Just because a Talon is three. But it, it would definitely be a playable force, I think. So what I'm looking at here is this. this looks more like two armies. Uh, it would make sense as two different ones. And then if you're able to sprinkle in a Primarch in one and some uh, uh, Lords of War or Super Heavies in the other, now you've got a pretty rounded force, I think. Now, if you look at the Solar Auxilia, we have a fairly similar deal here. You've got a bunch of troops and your Charonite Ogrens. You've got the Aethon Sentinels, which look really cool. They're the heavy scout sentinels with extra artillery on them. You've got the uh, four Lehman Rust tanks and two Malkadors. So all in all, again, I think that looks like an interesting force. I don't know enough about the Solar Auxiliary to know if this is effective, though. Do you guys have any opinion on that? Yeah, I'll admit, I don't know the 30K Auxilia too well. I'm The models are interesting enough that I want to learn. Yeah, those sentinels in particular... Are pretty interesting to me. I don't think they have that in the base game, do they? I know they don't have a model for it, but I'm pretty sure there's not even rules for that. Mm-hmm. In the I don't think book. so. Yeah, that's a whole new thing, so that's interesting. I wonder if that's something on the horizon. So I think it's the Talern book. I think, uh, I can't remember if it's a Malkador tank or not, but it's one of the, the big super heavy tanks. The one of the main characters from the Talon book is the tank crew of one of these super heavy tanks. So remembering that story makes me interested again in the Imperial army side of the heresy stories. So I'll definitely be looking into that more. 
Yeah, so on this side, it looks like you're missing something like a, a Bane Blade sprue. You know, you put in a bunch of Bane Blades on this, and that that really pumps up the power level pretty quickly if this was a 30k force. And this is also probably going to benefit from then adding in a set of flyers because later on in the rule release, they say that you're going to be able to incorporate uh, Aeronautica Imperialis into this game as well, which is very exciting. I've got a bunch of Aeronautica Imperialis stuff in boxes I haven't done anything with yet, but it makes me want to lean in. I was going to do them 40K in my, I was going to do them 40K colors in my homebrew chapter colors. But now that I know this, they'll probably probably be Ultramarines or maybe White Scars. I haven't decided yet. Yeah, and a lot of this stuff has been going on clearance at stores. That's how uh, Warwick and I got ours. So Longbeards, if you got a game shop and they've got Aeronautic Imperialis on sale, buy it and then send it to me. <laughs> nice try. Don't do that. Hang on to it for yourself. Now, but we yeah. do see... Oh, go ahead. Oh, I was going to say, now that this has been announced, uh, there is going to be a rush for Titanicus and Aeronautica. So if you do want that stuff, uh, you know, talking about that scarcity buy again, uh, it is going to probably go a little thin after the, for the next few months. And I think it's such an awesome move that they, I know we talked about it in our musings earlier uh, in a couple episodes ago, they scaled this with Titanicus and Aeronautica. So like the, the sales team or the, the rules team, whatever, it must have been like, we need a way to move more Titanicus and Aeronautica models. Let's roll this into a whole nother game. And it's cross compatible. It's so awesome. Great idea. And I did see a, uh, someone had a comment on Facebook where they wanted to also make sure we bring back Battlefleet Gothic. But, but I think what, what you would do is you make your game board a Battlefleet Gothic ship that you're fighting across and that there's how you bring Battlefleet Gothic into this scale. Yeah. Now, I was going to say a strike cruiser would probably be the size of a six by four. The very fun thing for us is that it's also compatible, of course, with Adeptus Titanicus and we get two Warhounds in this box with some really interesting uh, new add-ons that they're going to come with a sprue. Well, we don't know how many sprues this is or how many you get, but it's Missile Pods, Ursus Claw, Natrix Lance, Volkite Eradicator, and the Incisor Meltoff Lance. How do we feel about those guys? Well, I've had great luck with the Melta Cannons on my Reavers. So seeing that the Warhounds can take a Melta Cannon now is pretty great news. My only uh, concern about it is that you're kind of working against what Brandon calls God's combo of the Vulcan Mega Bolters and the Plasma Guns. The Plasma Blasters are so good because they're two, and when you set, when you have the center of your template over the base of the model, it counts as two hits. So potentially you have four hits from Plasma Blast Guns. Trading that out for one or two hits from uh, Miltic Lance is negligible. Yeah, I think the, the big thing here is almost all of these weapons outside of the Missile Launcher and the Melta are already available in resin. Um, so I think this is just them updating into a full plastic sprue. I think the winners here are going to be the Ursus Claw and the Shock Lance because that does seem to be the thing you'll see a lot on Warhounds if they're not running the Blast Gun Mega Bolter combo. How many of these weapons are going to be truly useful in a Legionus Imperialis battle. 
Are these going to be good against little tanks and, and troops? Well, I think you'll have a reason to run Flamestorm cannons on your Warhounds now. Yeah, it's true. We're going to have... Uh, we'll have to look at our Titanicus stuff and reevaluate a lot of the weapons we take. Now that there's going to be infantry and armor and dreadnoughts running around the table, uh, it's not just going to be God Engine on God Engine anymore. Uh, just a quick note. Did you guys also notice the uh, the bases they mentioned for the Warhounds? They yeah, don't have the lip on them. They're shorter. So they don't stand off the ground and they have like a, a texture on them now. Yeah, that was next on my list because now I wonder if I'm going to have to buy extra bases for these if they match the rest of my army or do I go with the sh- short, low profile for everything? I don't know. Yeah, it does mention it's the same size. They're just shorter. They don't have the lip around it. So no more black rims on your uh, bases, I guess. <laughs> Or your custom nameplates, if you've got those. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Guys that get custom nameplates are going to be out on that. Huh. Huh. That'll be interesting to see. What are Warhounds on? Are they on 60? They're on Um, 50 mil, aren't they? I think it's 50 mil. I can't remember now. So one thing that I like about this is that I'll have either infantry or armor units that can screen my Titans from Brandon's Knights which I, I struggle because I always run Titan heavy. I always struggle against night players. So having smaller units that can screen is going to be great for me. But we, we haven't seen the rules yet, though. So it's almost like there's going to be one set of rules where these are played in Legionus Imperialis, and then there will likely be another release for Adeptus Titanicus that says... Now, how do you bring in these units into your Adeptus Titanicus battles? Because I think the, the, the order system is completely different, and I don't see those games working together. But if we look at the, the last little thing they release models-wise will be uh, a re-release of the old scenery kits and some new ones. And from what I can tell, the new ones are going to be probably ruined versions of the old ones. That's my guess. Uh, do we want to get into what the rules are going to look like, or do you guys have anything else there on the models? Um, I would hope that the they add more Titanicus skill terrain to their uh, terrain to their line, because it's kind of uh, we don't have a whole lot, I guess. So it, them doing a better line, because I, I know some guys talked about how the the terrain pieces they put out don't go together great in some cases, but getting just more options for terrain features would be great. I'd like to see that. I've put together a bunch of those kits. You basically have the square buildings, then you have a set of spire tops, then you have the the the, the power systems and the loading crates and that sort of stuff. They go together okay. I wouldn't say they're great. The problem is that if you have a 3D printer, you can turn out a whole bucket of this stuff very quickly because the the detail level you need is not very high and i think just built, uh, printing three or four skyscrapers would fill out a, a good size board you know from the size we we play with plus some scatter terrain so this is one where the 3d printing guys are gonna i think probably a leg up on these kits now the orders look fairly similar to previous versions of epic if you go back and listen to our other podcast where i go into the rules of how the game is played you do have detachments so you set up individual armies on your side from one to several. 
and you have alternating activations. So you will set an order token by each detachment and you and that will be hidden. And you get to decide which of those is revealed during your turn and it does that action. And then the opponent, then he does one. And then you go back and forth until everyone has had an activation. So it's not you go, I go, it's alternating. So it'll be more, you'll be busy all the time. Then is a thing I like about Titanicus over the, all the other games that I play. The alternating activations make it a lot snappier. And then it says that there are victory points for objectives, and they're calculated every round. So it's not worth it just to, to go out and try to annihilate the enemy. You do have to maintain battlefield control and look at your objectives to win the game. It's not just about killing stuff. And you will need infantry to capture those objectives. So you, you won't be able to just to run knights or tanks. You've got to have a mixed, looks like a mixed force is what you're going to be going for here. And they did make mention that some of the weapons are completely ineffective against titans. So if you have an auto cannon on your predator, it's not going to do anything against that titan coming towards it. No 40k bolt guns glancing tanks to death. It's good news. Yeah, that's annoying. Yeah, you. So it's it's a game where you need to make sure you build a very well rounded list with your heavy support, your anti infantry, your super heavies, and all that. Because if you don't bring that heavy support, you're going to be in a world of hurt dealing with titans. All right. So what what is your uh, verdict on this game? You're gonna you think you will buy the box, or we're gonna wait and see? I'll definitely end up buying the box. I'm really surprised at how much I like these models. Uh, the amount of detail that I'm seeing and how close it is to the Age of Darkness box is really awesome. I'm also interested in the, the Warhound sprues that come with it because they have the new weapon options. Getting away from the, the resin kits is always good to me, so now that we're going to have some of these arm options and plastic is great, so... Even if we don't get around to, I, I hope that we do, I want to play this game. Even if we don't get around to it anytime soon, I'm happy just to have those Titanicus parts. Yeah, for me, it's going to just come down to the price. I know Brandon's going to want me to buy them, but it's just another game on top of all the other games. So I, I'm going to have to see what the prices look like before I can really get into it. Yeah, and I, I don't have high hopes for getting a game in of this, but I, I would like the idea of being able to field this with my Titanicus models because we have played a fair bit of that. And I wonder if those will look good painted up as word bearers. Yeah, I have to wonder about that because for anyone who is still playing Titanicus in these days, we have a lot of Titans. So I'm wondering what the epic field is going to look like. I almost wonder if it's going to be a lot of people just running their maniples and not buying the box until they can, you know, either buy it or get a feel for it. That's certainly my plan. I have three warlords, so I'm not worried about not having enough points on the table. That's an interesting observation, but I wonder if the the game is going to play in such a way that you're going to want different unit types like you can run all titans but it might not be in your best interest to it might be a very difficult game because i know in this uh community post they put out they did say that you know super heavies and armor are not going to be good at capturing objectives so 
you might have all your titans, but you're not going to be able to cap points like the enemy. Yeah, well, and looking at like the formation setup, I'm sure they're going to have some sort of like compulsory, like infantry slots and that sort of thing, command slots, that kind of stuff. A force org chart. We'll have to see how it looks. And do you think there's anything on the horizon for a new Adeptus Titanicus release then? So we've got these new ar- and a couple new arm sprues for the Warhounds. Do we get another Titan class or maybe some super heavy uh, Mechanicus uh, ordnance or Ordinatus weapons? So I know uh, Martin has mentioned this previously in, in one of his episodes is that we are missing a couple of Titan classes from the lore. I'm not super familiar with what they are, but he says there are a couple of things that could be worked in there. And I was going to mention something about seeing a full uh, Adeptus Mechanicus style army. So you'd have your Skatari and your battle mechs and, uh, and the like, and maybe like you said, an Ordinatus, that would be really cool. And is this going to open the door at some point for orcs, Eldar, other Xenos armies? Is that a possibility? From what they've said so far, they they make it seem as though it's just going to be the heresy conflict. So maybe, maybe not. We'll see, I guess. I think that'll largely depend on how popular Epic becomes, if it does or not. If they do, they'd already have some of the models done, because Aeronautica has orcs and eldar that's true eric uh, aeronautica has it um but for as far as adeptus titanicus goes you know we've mentioned that we would like to see orcs or eldar in the past but we haven't seen any you know stompas or guardians or anything which is kind of a shame but a little understandable because i i don't know how well titanicus sold well it's also the idea that anything they put under the heresy umbrella seems to be very locked into this idea of we're just going to focus on the Imperium only. And to be honest, I do think that's a good decision as much as that locks some people out of stuff they might want. We look at how poorly balanced Solar Auxilia and Custodes are when compared to the regular Space Marines. To introduce the Xenos races would probably be even harder just because they wouldn't match up to that standard fours across the board space marine template yeah i think at that point you probably break the game when you bring in too many factions as it is it's kind of a nice finely balanced little orchestra here if you bring in well i should say a little um yeah a little quartet it's like as soon as you bring in a few more factions the whole thing explodes and it gets it probably get crushed under its own weight like ninth edition 40k yeah, if I had more confidence in GW's rule writing, I would say it'd be a great thing to see, but I think coming out with something like Orcs, we'd end up with Custodes again, you know, where you get these nine-foot strength five, toughness five dudes running around with choppas. It'd be great to see, would not be fun to play against. I think we've kind of been spoiled a little bit with how good uh, version two of Heresy has been. It it definitely feels really balanced and I, I don't feel the need for any kind of balancing from, you know, it, the, the rubric has been out for about a year now and I feel like it's held up remarkably well considering what ninth edition looked or what ninth edition went through, what ninth edition 40 K went through and what 10th edition is already looking like to me. I, I was texting these guys a couple of days ago that 
at how strange 10th edition feels to me because I was trying to research it a little bit. And maybe we'll get into that later in another episode, but version two of Heresy has been great in my comparison. Yeah, so I think this Legionus Imperialis is looking uh, like the next hot thing for me at least. So I'm looking forward to giving that a try. Was there a release date on there? I have not seen one. So maybe this winter for Christmas, we can give each other the gift of Epic. And one little note on that, there has been some discussion online about whether or not this is quote-unquote Epic scale. Uh, All those old Epic minis were done in, I don't know if there was like a really set scale for them, and it was probably a little too small anyway. Uh, But all through these release notes that they've been putting on Warhammer community, they call it Epic scale. So Longbeards, if you want to call it Epic Scale, that's fine. That's what GW calls it, and we all know what you mean. It's not Battlefield Gothic Scale, and it's not 40K. We know right where you're you're at. Well, I'd like to take this opportunity to mention, on behalf of our friend Lucas, the taking of Ferex. They are moving on with their narrative campaign. Some of you might remember that we had Lucas on several episodes ago to talk about the narrative of taking a Ferex, and they've since moved on through several different uh, episodes or seasons of it, I guess you'd call it, and they had uh, the Amber Strand a while back, but they have signups going for Amber Strand 2 in Dallas, Texas, and he gave me some notes to go over. So the Texas Open is going to be August 11th through the 13th in downtown Dallas, uh, some of you guys really enjoyed the Adepticon recap that was that he was here for, and it was a, a pretty good experience having him on. They, Lucas sent me some notes talking about their improved points of interest system that they're going to go over, and the only thing that they're limiting in Amber Strand 2 is you're not going to be able to take unique model types. However, they have come up with their own character generating tool to, to make your own custom character for these narrative events in the Ferex Character Forge. And I will share the link for all this in the podcast description. I've gotten better about linking stuff. So you'll be able to, to follow to their uh, Ferex, taking a Ferex link tree. I'll have that in the bio. And then participants will need a 3,000 point frontline army for a regular game and then a 15 point zone mortalis list for the Zone Mortalis Mega Battle. So go ahead and follow the link and check out Taking a Ferex. Yeah, I wish I was in Texas. We'll have to make it to one of these events, and we need to plan another trip down there because it's always a lot of fun. Yeah, it's been a while since you guys have been down here. I think the last time was when Warwick came down and we played that one game. Yeah, you and Rich were supposed to come up to Iowa after that, and then you bailed. <laughs> yeah, well, our well, schedules are unflexible unfortunately. He's got a baby and a wife, I know. Got a new job. We'll figure it out, but um, why don't we go ahead and take a break here, and then we'll come back with some Fulgrim's Quest and the Pyroside Chat. Welcome back, everybody. We're going to get into a Fulgrim's quest talking about painting plasma glow or object source lighting. And I've been kind of 
learning it the past week or so, working on the Redemptor Dreadnoughts Plasma Cannon. And I've had some pretty moderate success. I feel like I've learned quite a bit. One of the things that I struggled with is that I am not used to painting purple. I have very rarely done it. So I really struggled getting my layering right on that. But once I figured that out, I really think I figured out how to get the glow effect going. Now, I didn't do the reflection off the Dreadnought chassis itself. I just went for the, the, the glow on the plasma cannon itself. But I think if I had an airbrush, this would be a lot easier. Uh, as I did it, I went all dry brush. And just working from a very, very, very light base coat, I, for a lot of my painting that I've done thus far is I start with a dark color and I brighten it up. So like with my blue ultramarines for heresy, it's very easy. You start with the McCrag blue base coat and then I just edge highlight or a stipple with a much lighter blue and then blend it all together using a washer and ink. But with purple, it was the exact opposite. I had to start with a incredibly light base coat. So I had to go with um, ceramite, white, ceramite white, I believe, and then uh, darken it up from there. So I went several different shades of light purple going to a much darker purple into the plasma coils and then even using uh, pink for some of the, the brightest highlights and all of that. And I think I was able to blend that together all fairly well. And this is like something that Maniple says that kind of drives me up the wall is that he'll say something crazy like, oh, you know, like true white has a little bit of blue in it. So, you know, it's it's uh, so, some way that the colors blend or, you know, purple actually has pink in it and blue actually has purple in it. And I ignore all that because I think it's crazy long beard talk and he's just making shit up. Turns out he's right. I had to revisit several of my attempts at this, and this is actually like four different layers on this model until I finally got it right. But, you know, maybe don't don't just write everything the Longbeard say off as being crazy. I mean, most of it is, but sometimes they're right. So what do you guys have to add to all this? Yeah, I'll say this is... The OSL stuff is one of those things that everyone really wants to do because it looks so amazing when it's done right and all the guys on YouTube are doing it. It's something that I will do if I'm really feeling up to the challenge of it, but it takes a lot of work to get it done right, even if it does look great. So I would say your biggest help is do a lot of research, get a lot of reference before you start putting paint down. Um, just a measure twice, cut once kind of scenario with these because it's a lot easier to go into it knowing what you're doing or at least having a good idea of what you're doing. It'll require a lot less cleanup in the end that way. It's a little bit hard to find reference material, but I did find out that neon signs actually have plas it's plasma. You're creating a plasma effect inside the neon when you run the electrical current through it. And if you look at those for source material, you'll see that the inside of the tube itself is white. And then as, it, as the color goes out, the light gets more rich in color. So the technique that Warwick described is what you find on the uh, Warhammer website. If you go to see what Peachy or Duncan have painted, they'll start with a dark color. And they had a couple up there that start, started with like a Thousand Suns of Blue and Cantor Blue, then go up to Aramon Dry Brush, or, or techless 
and then Baharath. I think Baharath used to be like ice blue. I think that's what that was. Or it might be techless, one of those. But you go to a really, and then you finish your highlight with white. And they kind of say it, it's okay when you're doing the dry brush on there to hit the casing of the gun. By now, the whole rest of the gun should be painted. And then on your sec, on your like first highlight or your second dry brush, you're going to go ahead and hit those edges of the weapon and the armor around it with kind of your mid color. And then the same thing with your final highlight. You're going to just dust the top of the plasma coils, hit the armor and the casing around there just really lightly. And that gives you your OSL effect and gives you a nice bright highlight. However, that is not what a neon tube looks like. The when I, I looked at the GW uh, painting scenarios there and it's like, okay, that's how I've usually done it, but it never quite looked right to me. So I found a couple other YouTubers Shout out to Watch It, Paint It, and Juan Hidalgo. And they both do a reverse highlight. And they start with a uh, like a white base coat. And then they go through the process, but they're going darker and darker and darker as they go out. And they're really co- the best tip I saw was Juan Hidalgo had found these white oil brushes from Ammo MIG. And it's an integrated brush in a oil capsule that you can thin with with pink thinner and then he used that as the final glaze on the inside of the the plasma coil to really make that bottom part look as white and bright as possible and then the color got richer and richer as you came out of it using different kinds of glazes and uh, i guess they're not really highlights they're off lights but i thought that effect the reverse highlight effect looked a lot better what what do you guys think have you tried to ever try to do so that? I had the same thing when I painted my Balrog. I did the blue fire on it and I tried to do... So when you're looking at an acetylene torch, the hottest part of the flame near the the cone, or I guess the the nozzle of your acetylene torch, the, the hottest part of that flame is the white bit near the nozzle and the flame gets darker as it goes out. When I painted the Balrog, that's what I first tried to do is go white to dark blue as it went out. But that looked just weird. It looked wrong. So I actually reversed it so it's dark blue near the body, and it, it brightens as it gets farther away. And that was done with all wet blending. So it's it's a fairly simple effect. I was going to say, that, that seems to be a common thing when dealing with fire and light. People like to think the source is dark, and it gets brighter the further away it goes, but it's actually the reverse. And it's a weird thing to try to turn your head around about that. I don't know why uh, we do that, but it is a fun little quirk. Yeah, I've, I think I've done the reverse, like that neon tube sort of idea on a few like test character models before. I've never really tried to implement it overall. It's an interesting idea. I'll have to look into it a bit more. If you're looking for more just quick and dirty, there's a lot of sites like Goonhammer has easily like a dozen different articles on like how to do a 20 minute OSL. If you're not too concerned with it looking amazing and you're just trying to get something on there that'll look workable on the tabletop, you can rely on something like that. I've noticed contrasts and the old glazes before they did contrasts are actually really good at kind of cheating in OSL with some white highlights covered in glaze and contrast to sort of like pop that color. Yeah, because I think the ones I look at that I like, you're not really trying to add light to those, the armor pieces of the gun casing. You're adding the color of the light, if that makes sense. So 
if your plasma coil is blue, put some blue on the armor. If it's green, put some green on the armor. If it's yellow, put some yellow on the armor. And you're not really trying to make that armor highlighted, but you're trying to show that it's picked, its color has changed because of the illumination source that, that is on it. So I'm, I'm looking at like our various backgrounds. I can tell what kind of light bulbs Paul has in his uh, 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 light fixture because it's white light. Mine is more yellow, and Warwick has a uh, kind of a starfield background. So everything has a different color because of the light bulb we have. And actually, I think we mentioned this in a previous one, but if you can find a lamp that has a cycling light color, like I can alter between white, blue, and fluorescent, and having the ability to change my lights at my desk while I'm working on a model helps to really get a good feel for how it's going to look under different lighting conditions and also helps to really see shadow on the model. So if you're trying to do OSL, having a decent quality work lamp at your workstation really helps with that a lot. And I don't think the OSL has to take a long time. One of my buddies who paints a lot, he'll do speed painting competitions where he's got only 45 minutes to complete a miniature. And one of the tricks he found when he was getting first, second, third place in these painting competitions was that he would always do an OSL effect. And he's already got the paint mixed up for the torch or for the light source he's got. Then he just really quickly dry brushes some of that on the sleeve, on the cobblestone and on the, the, the lapel of the jacket. And he's, and he's got it instantly. I think if Ridge was here, he'd probably be talking about those round highlight uh, dry brush brushes that he has. He steals his wife's makeup brushes. People. He's a monster. So Get your wife's or long beards, your mom's makeup brushes. That's fine. Uh, she won't miss them. Get her another pack for Christmas. I can, well, I don't have a girlfriend or a mom nearby to be getting mine, so I have to pay for mine and get weird looks at the cash register. But uh, honestly, you wouldn't think it, but makeup brushes are really great for dry brushing. Um, and honestly, it's you got a dollar general because you're not caring about the quality of the brush necessarily because you're not putting it on skin, you're putting it on models. So you can go to Dollar General, pick up the cheapy ones, and they'll do just fine for you. Well, yeah, because at the checkout line, if the lady gives you any funny looks, you say, this is for my model. And she won't know what you're talking about. And then it begins with, in the 41st millennium, there is only war. Let me. So there's you. this guy, the emperor, <laughs> and he made the primarchs. And wait, the primarchs are his genetically engineered sons, and they have their legions. And the legionaries are... And that's why I need these makeup brushes. <laughs> yep, yep. Just, you know, average being a human, working out perfectly. So I think for our next gift exchange, maybe one of the challenges we set for ourselves is to do an OSL effect on whatever model we, we trade off and could be a way to make us do this. So I'm going to, I've got, with these Volkite calibers, do you think that's kind of the same thing? Could I do the same? A little effect? bit. I did just a little bit of... I think green highlight on the coils on all of mine and they turned out it's very, it was a very simple, basic kind of OSL, but I think it looked very glowy and, and good. Yeah. Plasma, Volkite. Those are the two that I think that comes to mind. When I painted my plasma rifles for my support squad, I did a very, very simple orange OSL on those. Cause I wanted, uh, 
instead of going blue, I went orange. And I started with the first test that I did, I started with a red base because I thought that I wanted like uh, kind of a bright red orange plasma effect. And then another one of those crazy things that actually Brandon told me was try brown is your base. And I was like, that's going to look shitty and boring. But no, the, the brown burnt umber base works a lot better for an orange glow. Learning that was kind of a hard pill to swallow for me. It's, it's something that did not uh, function in my mind very clearly. Yeah, the color wheel is a weird thing. If it works, it works. White Dwarf used to have a little insert in it that came with a little black and white magazine called um, the Black Gabo. And the Black Gabo had painting tips in it, but then there was an online version of it as well. I probably need to try to find that somewhere. There's got to be an archive with all those old Black Gabos. I think that they have all of their white dwarfs in there. If you have Warhammer Plus, they have all that. But Black Gobble was a different, a separate publication. And they even had, they had one, I remember one Black Gobble article that had five different ways to paint black. And some of them started with a brown base coat. Some started with a white base coat. Some started with a gray. And then they had all different ways to, because you have to remember that paint is translucent. So it's going to show all the layers underneath it, even though if you don't see it, your mind will. You know what I mean? And all those layers account for something at the finished project a product. It's amazing to see how different those can all look when they're done. And that's especially true with these lighting effects. You got to think, well, what's at the base of this? And how's that working out through the layers? That's going to inform a lot of your decisions. So I, another thing that I learned on this was after you get your OSL done, is kind of blending it all back together with the model itself. And the suggestion I got from uh, a guy in a, a Gilded server was to, so if you're, say you're doing, this is a plasma cannon, and the, the shell of the weapon itself is green. The plasma effect glow is purple. The suggestion I got was to blend it all back together by using a super thin glaze of your green base color about halfway into your OSL, and that, I don't want to say it dumbs it down, but it it really helps those colors mesh together because it, it makes it the purple look less harsh, maybe, on that weapon casing. Diffused. That's Diffused. For. That's that's a good yeah, that's a good way of, of putting it. So it it really tied it all together and that's where I started to to see a lot of progress in that. Even though it, I felt like it was all done, it was a really good, you know, cherry on the cake, I guess you'd say. Yeah, and establishing that gradient is going to be the the biggest challenge for OSL. But once you get a feel for it, it is very satisfying to see the finished product. So an, another thing that that I took into consideration, uh, I know I talked about the Balrog, but like the surface that you're affecting might not be as reflective. So the the Balrog particularly from the lore, they're creatures of flame and shadow. So I did not make it a reflective blue or white. The model, the, the base model itself in the black is a very matte kind of finish to it. So you'd think that like maybe there should be some reflection here, but if the model you're painting is not a reflective surface, like if it's glass, it's one thing. If it's uh, a matte black, it's probably not going to be the same. Yeah, and that kind of just goes back to the reference thing. Honestly, not just looking at models and painting tutorials for models, but if you branch outside of that and just look at any sort of lighting uh, reference, um, 
art textbooks and that sort of thing will have a lot on how to do lighting properly and just studying those can really help uh, get your shadows and your OSL down pretty pat. And they're usually pretty thorough. Yeah. And that's not something we've touched on. Maybe in a future episode, we could talk about some reference books because if you just watch a five minute tutorial on how to paint something, you're only getting the result of a lot of study and practice. But if you have a book, a book on art technique and the, how to use the color wheel and contrast and the role of that light plays, understanding why one piece of art looks good and one piece of art doesn't, that is going to really kick your painting skills up another notch as well to understand how all this goes together. If you really want to get become a, maybe not a professional, but, but really understand the craft of it, to do your research and understand why these things work and why some things don't. Well, I think that is a pretty good talk for OSL. Do we want to move on to our Pyroside chat? Well, gather around, dear listeners, and we're going to be visiting some of Games Workshop's rules in this segment, maybe improving them, reworking them in something that we think is a little more appropriate or that we just think we could do a little better. So, Manipul, I know that you had brought up reworking the hero wound chart for zone mortalis or the onslaught campaigns and the Cthonia book. And you had some ideas there. So why don't you lead us off? Well, I had a thought about that and I, about partway through this process, I realized that the designers of that had fallen into an old GW trap where there'll be something in the rules that is really not fun and you don't need to put it in there. So it might be realistic, but it's not fun. And it just kind of kills the player's immersion. It gives some bad feelings at the end of the day. And it's really not necessary. It reminds me of some experiences of playing Mordheim, where Mordheim is one of my all-time favorite games. But if you're a hero that you got received a, a particularly bad injury, and then your next hero got the same thing, it would really spoil the entire campaign. You know, there were, there were a point where I'd get to having so many injuries in my warband, I couldn't play the campaign anymore. I had to start a new one. And that was just not fun. So if I'm wanting to play a game, I don't want a reality simulator. All right. I want it to be more interesting. So I was thinking about doing, you know, a, a more, uh, a wound chart with some more breadth to it with some more action. But then I thought, well, why do you even need a wound chart? You could make one even simpler. And if I was going to stick with that wound chart, I'd make it a lot less punishing so when you roll a one you don't remove the guy completely you just say well he misses the next battle okay that's as much punishment as i would want to put into a campaign especially when you know you're only going to be playing like five or six games let's try to simplify that piece and then on on a two to four you get a very minor piece of discomfort maybe he loses a point of leadership or loses a point of ballistic skill Something that's annoying, but it's not gonna, it just makes you change your strategy a little bit. It doesn't knock you out of the whole system. And then on a six, he the fella actually gets bionics, and now he gets to add one to his feel no pain roll. Or if he doesn't have one, he gets one. And now you've got something in there that's that's okay, it's somewhat realistic, it gives a little flavor, a little color, but it's not that that kick in the stomach that you don't, you, you don't really want to feel when you finally get around to playing this campaign with your buddies. What do you guys think of that piece of it? If you're going to keep a wound chart, make it something more like that. Yeah, I can definitely see that working. Um, 
And I mean, you can implement that even now, just as kind of a house rule sort of thing when playing with friends. For me, the Mordheim experience, or, you know, something that we've played more recently, the uh, Wifrip experience, the RPG, there seems to be this idea because of the grim, dark setting that your characters need to die constantly and be afflicted with every malady under the sun. And I think if you go into it with a certain mindset to expect that as part of the experience, it's not bad. I think with my Mordheim leagues that I used to play in, we cycled through our warbands so often that the idea of just scrapping them constantly didn't really bother us because it was just part of it. And we were running really short campaigns of only like a month and then it was throw them out anyway. We're starting a new group. So I think that's just what uh, that sort of wound style kind of gameplay sort of facilitates. But I think if you're looking for something a bit more long-term, then yeah, it would probably need to be readjusted for that kind of play. Like a long-form campaign, Planetary Empires, it's a really kick in the knackers when you're halfway through and you've just lost everything to bad rolls. I think the idea of running something at a deficit is probably a... Uh, pretty big deterrent for a lot of newer players. Now, veteran players might feel differently because they're like, oh, this is a, a whole new level of uh, of challenge that I have to take into consideration when I'm playing my games. But for newer players that maybe not want to, maybe don't want to keep track of that kind of stuff, um, probably not that appealing. So maybe having something, maybe an optional chart, or if this is probably optional in the um, Zone Mortality or the Onslaught campaign rules as well, but having this as like an optional function for players is probably a better idea. I think right out of the gate, making this mandatory function is probably a deterrent to some players. I know Battletech players are probably laughing at me because they keep reams and reams and reams of, uh, when they're running their campaigns of data sheets for their battle mechs, like, oh, this one took a hit in the arm actuator last section, so he can't aim very good in this se session until I get repairs done. So uh, Battletech players, they're a whole different breed. But, you know, for, for starting off in the uh, kind of the, you play a game and you either lose your models and get them back at the the, the next session, uh, 30K is, is a lot different by comparison. Well, and I think you nailed on the problem with a lot of the GWIP stuff. When you talked about the battle tech thing, it was they're going to have all these things to keep track of and all these problems until they get repaired. And I think that's something that a lot of systems that include permanent forms or semi-permanent forms of damage include is some way to rectify the situation. You know, even like RPG systems like D&D have healing or, you know, if it's something grievous, you can go even as far as bringing a player back from the dead if you undertake some heroic feat. But with Warhammer, there's very much this idea of like, oh, I rolled a one, he's dead, and there is nothing I can do about that. And that's, I think that's where the feel bad comes from, is there's no recourse um, for that kind of thing. Right, so that's the beef with this zone mort or this fatality table is mortally wounded is one of the conditions, and they have uh, like uh, 
sorry, no, what am I thinking of? Badly hurt is like uh, m- minus one to your wound characteristics. And I was like, okay, like maybe for one game I can see that, but if he survives the next game, then maybe he gets bionics by the next part and his wound total is back up to normal. So th- m- there's a way to come back from this. Or uh, like e- even if they are killed and removed from the campaign altogether, or maybe the mortally wounded is like, you know, this praetor cannot come back as a praetor. He has to come back as a dreadnought and there's some points cost to it. There's a way to bring that character back into the campaign, but to just have this running deficit is a super frustrating thing to look at on paper or even like, especially to to play with. Because wasn't those results something that negative happened to you? And your opponent gets a bonus. Right. So on the mortally wounded one, it's like um, your character is removed from play, but the enemy gets like a morale boost and then they can seize objectives more more easily for the rest of the game. Yeah. And so that's another classic GW problem is that you don't have a catch-up mechanic if you're the underdog. It gets harder and harder and harder. Well, and that was the thing that I think made Mordheim a little bit better in that regard is there was a lot of balancing... Um, with warband rating and they made replacing characters and warbands fairly simple so as long as you weren't like super invested in the backstory of you know captain franz or whatever who lost an eye it was pretty easy to just dump him out and get a new captain and start building experience again without any real loss to the warband outside of personal investment so this is something that brandon talked about he and i were revisiting some old rts games uh, real-time strategy. So like Dawn of War, um, Star, sorry, Starcraft, Age of Empires, games like that. And if you're playing the campaign mode, you'll oftentimes have these missions where you have a hero character. Like in Starcraft, you've got um, Kerrigan or James Rayner, whatever. One of your mission conditions is this hero must survive. And Brandon always says, well, I can't use this character now because if I put them on the front line, they run the risk of dying and I lose. So a, a, a player like Brynn will oftentimes see a, a, a condition like that and just say, I'm not going to use my hero. They're not going to be on the front line. So even though you have your Praetor, who is a, a melee monster, he, who very rightly should be in the mix, you don't want to put them on the front line because they run the risk of getting stomped on by, you know, a... Uh, full unit of cataphractes with thunder hammers or something. That's a pretty terrifying prospect if you want your character to survive. Yeah. And so when I finished this little mini chart for the wounds, I thought, well, why do you have to have it at all? If it's not fun, just kick it out of your games and instead give yourselves an experience chart where now you've got 2d6 and you roll for something good to happen. And to make your own, and I'll, I'll see if I can get this one finished up and post it on uh, the socials, but basically you just have a running list of all the uh, attributes on your on your character, weapon skill, ballistic skill, leadership, and all that. And next battle, he gets a plus one, or, or for, from now on, a plus one on that. And then during the course of the campaign, you can have a maximum of, say, two or three of these. And then maybe he's got something like, He's really good. He's, he's really tough now, so he gets to re-roll his armor saves, where he gets that plus one to feel no pain. Or you can re-roll the initiative at the start of battle. Or if your opponent wants to night fight, you can say he can say no. So they actually did that 
in um, Path to Glory for Age of Sigmar, where I can't remember the rules. It's been a while since I've looked at it, but wasn't it after you won, you could roll on the chart and your units could gain attributes permanently throughout the campaign? And I don't think there were any downsides to dying or losing. So it was just you got a little stronger, minor buffs across the table for every win you got as a little, here you go, but they weren't game-breaking. It was always nice. Even if the penalty for your hero getting removed from play was like they can't participate in the next battle, but they'll be back at the one after that, I'd be okay with that because it's like they need time to recover. That's okay, but to say that for the rest of your campaign your hero has to run at this you know permanent loss is really annoying. But what happens if, say you're only running two characters and they both get taken out? Maybe you you have a, some kind of lieutenant or like a second command that has to come in. Right. Yeah. I think the rule in Mordheim was if you dumped a captain and didn't hire a new one, you could promote one of your champions to captain and he would gain like experience. But I've definitely had that where it's like first game with a Reichlander warband captain goes down and I roll the minus one ballistic skill. And I'm like, well, this war band's toast trash start again. <laughs> yeah. Cause you need, now would you run that Reichlander captain with a, with a bow or a crossbow? Uh, crossbows usually. And then, well, actually with the captain, I usually would spring for a brace of pistols, but everyone else was crossbows. <laughs> right. And so on, on, again, on some of that chart, if you're doing an, like an experience chart, you also might add in some of the special rules, like stubborn. Maybe he causes fear, has hatred, or his melee weapon gains brutal. You know, try to do something fun like that in there. And then, if you say one of your captains, then he gets two or three of these upgrades. Now, when your opponent sees him across the table, he's going to remember that guy. He's going to say, "I really don't want to mess with that with that cataphracty uh, captain over there because he's got." The business and i really don't want to get close to him so that is really going to change the way your game plays if he knows that that guy's really been tooled up and i think that's a much more interesting experience than saying oh remember that guy who was really cool in the last game well he's dead and he's not coming back because the rule says i can't use that model anymore it just i think that's a much more positive experience reward smart play don't punish bad play I can or just see bad that. luck and that's yeah. the that's the problem i was seeing with that is that there's this this you know loss system there's no bonus system so you don't you don't get any points for doing better you only get penalized for losing yeah and going back to something that paul said earlier was that we know we're trying to capture the grimdark aesthetic here there's a lot of other ways for that to happen in the in the course of the game without making actually the player feel bad you want the the game pieces to feel bad not you you know what i mean there should be that separation. So having your Iron Hands captain get removed from play and then coming back the next game with a better feel-no-pain because he's got more bionics now makes more sense to me than, you know, any captain. You know, I, I guess any captain could do that, but having any hero getting removed from play and then coming back at a, a permanent deficit doesn't make as much sense to me. There, especially in this this age of incredible technology and advancement there should be some technological or you know even spiritual way of overcoming these hardships i just want to note that we've been saying captain but i think we mean to say praetor and consul right 
Right. So any c- I'm, centurion. I'm still stuck in ancient 40k yeah, terms. I, I guess. <laughs> yeah. It's it's Praetors. centurion now, not captain. My bad. And praetor. Hey, if GW gets to play it fast and loose with the rules, so will I. All right. So I think if you do want some more inspiration for those, you're making your own experience chart. Go back and look at some of the old uh, GW campaigns that they've released over the years, like the old General's Compendium, a copy of the Mordheim rulebook. All that stuff will give a lot of inspiration for how you can make a much more fun and thematic uh, experience chart. And if you really want to go back, try to find the old Warhammer Quest books that came in the board game. That had some hilarious stuff you could do between battles. I would love to have a more uh, fleshed out uh, between battle experience with some 30k could be fun as well where all your praetors go out and get drunk and get beat up by a minotaur man that'd be awesome those like between adventure uh kind of like role charts have always been super interesting to me so i would love to see something like that put into effect for like a shattered legions kind of campaign style thing well i think that wraps us up for our pyroside chat was there anything you guys wanted to add to this episode no, I think we had some uh, really good conversation. When I first heard about the topics, I wasn't sure if I had to have anything to talk about, but as it happens, we always do. So uh, be interested to know if anybody on the socials has any other ideas for topics we can cover. I think there will still be quite a bit of stuff in the pipeline, but uh, we're happy to discuss all uh, aspects of the hobby, and I, I like being here. Yeah, definitely, for sure. It's always good talking. I mean, we do this all the time anyway through text and discord and just hanging out so get me in front of a camera it's not much different always got something to say yeah i'm always surprised at how long we can go on at these but that's kind of the reason we started the podcast so i'm definitely glad we do it so why don't you guys go ahead and look us up on social media it's legion cast a horse heresy podcast on twitter And shoot us an email at legioncast18 at gmail.com. We'll love to hear from you guys. And until next time, play Wheel of Fortune.